Hello everyone, welcome back to Freedom Talks and I'm your host Brady and today I am pleased to be joined by uh, Tanya Winders who is a healthcare expert and CEO of Allergy and Asthma Network, a nonprofit that represents over 50 million Americans with asthma, allergies and related conditions. Uh, on top of that, we are also joined by Molly Ripberg who's a physical therapist uh, and a frequent guest on the show and she's uh, got a child with asthma or sorry allergies and um, is going to help me ask some questions to Tanya. So Tanya, how are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me, Brady. Nice to meet you both. Nice to meet you as well. Um, so Tanya, if you could just kind of start, give us a little bit of background about the Allergy and Asthma Network and your role there and maybe a little bit on how you got to that spot. Absolutely. So um, Allergy and Asthma Network is a grassroots patient education and patient advocacy organization. Uh, we have been around since 1985, started by moms for moms of, of families that had children with severe allergies, food allergies, as well as asthma. And so the organization uh, you know, has continued to grow, really started at one lady's kitchen table, and then has grown now to reaching millions each and every year through our various channels and programs. For myself, I am the mom of five and the grandmother of one, and we are that atopic family. We have a lot of allergies, both in seasonal, environmental, uh, as well as food allergies. And then eczema, asthma, uh, hives, you know, you name it. I, I often say it should have been on my dating profile. It wasn't 26 years ago. And, and so, um, you know, that's just the way it's ended up. My husband and I definitely had the perfect mix to have atopic children. Um, but I've worked alongside the network for um, really a, a long time since my kids were little. But 10 years ago, I had the opportunity to come and lead as the president and CEO. And it has just been my dream job. It really has been the perfect marriage of my master's in business administration and marketing, um, my experience in pharmaceutical and medical device before then coming to, to lead the network. Um, and so you've obviously had, um, be, before that you mentioned being kind of in the medical world already, what were some of the positions you held and, and what do you think some of that, how do, how do you think that experience affected where you uh, are able to lead the allergy and asthma network? So I started out actually in sales and marketing um, in pharmaceuticals, but all in asthma and allergies. So that was just kind of the space I landed in. And so I got really great training on the science because that is one thing that pharma does exceptionally well is train their staff on the science behind the treatments and the disease states. Um, and so that's been very helpful and beneficial. And then as I moved through my career, I began to lead larger teams and work with uh, experts all over the country. And so that really gave me an in with the leading allergist, immunologist, pulmonologists throughout the U.S., which certainly has helped in this capacity and role of leading Allergy and Asthma Network. And then in my final role, um, before I came to the network, I actually worked with patient advocacy organizations and with the professional societies. And so I, from an industry side, from a corporate side, I quickly learned what um, you know worked and how we could optimize the relationship with patient advocacy organizations to ensure that we were getting that unbranded 
uh, really evidence-based disease education to patients. Now, you had mentioned kind of this grassroots movement that had started the Allergy and Asthma Network. Um, and I kind of think to, you know, Molly and I uh, take some drives out because we have four different locations. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, maybe she's fielding a call from the school and it feels like um, a lot of the allergy issues are still kind of uh, not being taken care of to the extent that a lot of parents, I'm sure, would like to see for their kids. Um, why did it have to kind of start with a grassroots movement and how much progress has been made and like kind of where, how much more progress needs to be made to get to where we ideally would be um, in schools mm -hmm. and for awareness? Well, I, you know, I know it, you may not even have vivid memories, but I do of 1985. I actually was in high school at the time when the organization began. Um, but in the 80s and 90s, remember the internet was not as readily accessible, right? And so people didn't have all of this information at their fingertips. Um, even the diagnosis and recognition of these conditions was much less in that original 10 to 15 years of the organization. So it really wasn't until we turned the corner into the 2000s that we had the broad use and acceptance of the internet um, where you could really uh, disseminate and, and connect even as a community more broadly. And so that's what happened is that once the internet came into play, um, we began to see these little support groups come together to form a national network. And that's where things began to take off. That's also about the time that really the science hit a whole nother level as far as on diagnosing allergy and asthma and treating it innovatively. Um, and so that's the time where we saw uh, for example, blood tests for allergy um, that were more reliable than what they had been in the past. Um, although a lot of allergists still do skin prick testing, there is a, a, actually blood tests as well. And then um, we began to see on the diagnosis side of asthma, greater use of spirometry, which is a breath analysis that helps you to understand if you have asthma. Um, and then, you know, as we move into the treatment space, all of a sudden in the food allergy space, again, unfortunately, we're just now getting there where we have food allergy treatments. But in the asthma space, we started seeing really good inhalers um, with controllers and quick relief medications. So we began to understand more that asthma is a chronic condition that's sort of a two-sided coin, both the underlying inflammation and the uh, bronchoconstriction. And so that's why we need the two medicines of a controller and a quick relief. And so all of that evolution really in the early 2000s and moving us into the last decade, um, it, it has just catapulted these diseases to the center of, of you know, healthcare discussions and policymakers. And so when we get policymakers' attention, you get more funding, more resources. Thankfully, we've also had some legislation passed that allows students to, to really have their allergies and asthma more better recognized in the school and emergencies better prepared for in the school. So now students can self-carry their medication, which they couldn't do 20 years ago. Um, and they also have the backup of stock emergency medication like epinephrine for life-threatening allergies and albuterol for asthma.
And so now all 50 states basically allow for that. How how prevalent, I mean, just for our listeners, are, are is asthma and, and allergies? Um, yeah. So asthma is actually uh, about 26 million Americans currently living with asthma. It is the number one reason kids miss school. And that is often misunderstood. Um, we also know that unfortunately, communities of color, brown and black children and adults are have higher risk of asthma, both the prevalence and the worsening of symptoms, the, the risk of ER visits, the risk of hospitalization. Uh, and so there's many different reasons why that occurs, but we've developed some programs specifically to address those most burdened communities. Now, when it comes to allergies, 60 million Americans live with environmental allergies. So that's one in five of our population. And then 30 million live with some degree of food allergy. Um, and that has just exponentially grown over the last decade. And we really don't know why. Um, you know, we don't know if we're doing a better job of diagnosing it or if truly the incidence, the prevalence is growing at such an exponential rate. Now, um just because you kind of sparked a, me a memory for me. So in, in one of my immunology classes in, in school, um, they talked about one part of your immune system, um, specifically your, your IgD, um, that was originally, you know, many years ago was really good at fighting off parasites. And they, they, they didn't have it proven, but they were wondering and theorized if because that part of your immune system is dormant, that um, that is now kind of seeing allergens as something to attack and causing an immune response. Is there any, any weight yeah. to that? So I think that what we know is that um, in our civilized Western world, these things are more prevalent. Right. So if you mm -hmm. go to un, to low to middle income countries, uh, undeveloped nations, you just don't see the prevalence, especially of things like environmental allergies or food allergies to the same degree. So there's something definitely our bodies were made um, in a miraculous way, right, to fight and, and to protect us. And so in a Western world where things are so clean and where perhaps uh, we don't have those parasites to um, to fight off, there is a lot, uh, it's called the hygiene hypothesis, that the cleaner our environment is, the more our body tries to find something to fight against, even if it's really not harmful. Gotcha. And so another thing that you kind of mentioned um, is the spirometry and the advancements in detecting and treating asthma and things like that. And you kind of had stated that it's starting to work its way um, throughout healthcare and become more prevalent and more awareness and things like that. And uh, Molly, I don't know if you know that kind of it's getting into the physical therapy space a little bit. And I can kind of let Molly kind of explain some of the things that she does with spirometry um, and kind of came about because of COVID. And I also know um, that your uh, the, the Allergy and Asthma Network also um, kind of played a big part in helping the treatment of those with uh, asthma and allergies during COVID. Um, so Molly, yeah. can you kind of explain maybe to Tanya where you're coming from? And then um, Tanya, if you can kind of tell us how, you know, the Allergy and Asthma Network has attacked uh, the COVID issue. 
Yep. So kind of during COVID, um, you know, we were seeing a lot of these long COVID patients beginning to come into the clinic um, and realize that we definitely needed to, to figure out how we could best treat them. Um, so another uh, the therapist and I um, decided to kind of become certified in at least the spirometry portion of um, kind of respiratory assessment. And um, we have been using the spirometry more, more or less just to kind of get a good baseline as to their pulmonary function. Um, and then working with them, um, teaching them how to better utilize their lungs and help them get back to um, kind of normal breathing again. Same thing goes, you know, as far as, you know, asthma, being able to help, you know, improve lung function, um, both through incentive spirometry, um, as well as the testing. Yeah, you know, Molly, this is something that we hear every day at Allergy and Asthma Network. So um, not just those that were already diagnosed with allergies and asthma, but just the general population. Um, we, back in March of 2020, started doing COVID webinars, and we've done now 40 webinars in the past two years with over 200,000 people tuning in. Um, we also developed a COVID-19 information center that draws a couple of hundred thousand unique visitors each and every month. And then we go out into the community and do COVID testing, COVID vaccination, uh, education around COVID vaccine hesitancy, really in these high-risk populations. We also do some lung health screening, and then we offer free telehealth coaching. And this is run by respiratory therapists, asthma educators, um, nurse practitioners, and PAs who are dedicated to this space. And so I love the fact that you guys are incorporating uh, spirometry into your pulmonary rehab program for these long haul patients, because um, again, it, it's remarkable to hear the stories daily of people who 12 months, 24 months out are still so significantly impaired uh, because of long COVID. And here's what we now know. Um, the science is really rapidly evolving here, and we know that this is immune driven. And so Brady, kind of going back to your original conversation about um, you know, our bodies and the miraculous immune system. Um, so something for some patients, about 10 to 15% of COVID patients, the immune system goes a little haywire and the T cells di dysregulate. And when they dysregulate, um, for some reason they are forever changed. And that's why we see these patients with uh, brain fog and chronic fatigue and you know, really just the inability to live life fully. So a lot of the work at Allergy and Asthma Network in the future will be devoted to helping these communities and, and these patients alongside our core community of allergy and asthma patients. And so with the, with COVID, there was obviously, you know, a lot of things were said in the news about uh, people who are at risk. Do you have any information on how much more at risk someone with asthma would yeah. be um, getting COVID? So this was like the most frustrating aspect early on in the pandemic, because we were hearing 
differing reports that said, you know, asthma patients are at higher risk. No, asthma patients aren't at higher risk. So when you look at that data in detail, here's what it truly says. At baseline, if you have good asthma control, I mean, no symptoms, you're able to live your life fully without symptoms impairing you. And so if you are well controlled at baseline, when you get COVID, then you are at no higher risk for complications from COVID. On the other hand, we know about 50% of patients are not well controlled. So one in two aren't controlled at baseline. When those uncontrolled patients get COVID, they do have worse outcomes. So they do have higher ER visits, higher rates of innovation, and higher rates of hospitalization and death. So the real key here was not, do you have asthma or do you or not? It was, is your asthma well-controlled? And unfortunately, that sort of got lost in the media reports. And how big of an impact do you think that all of the activities and awareness campaigns and those uh, drives where you are testing and um, kind of giving out information and educating about COVID and the vaccines and things like that. Um, do you have any idea of the impact that you're able to have? Yeah. So, you know, this is one of those things that I love to talk about because I feel like I'm so proud of the team and the work that we've done um, in really challenging times. So we have screened over 3000 patients uh, in the last 18 months. And those are with validated screening tools and the breath test that we talked about earlier. Um, of that group, uh, again, we then stratified that population. And there were over 40% that had some underlying chronic lung condition like asthma or COPD. Of that group, we enrolled over 300 into our telehealth coach program. And we have seen improvement in lung function, improvement in activities of daily living, decrease in their rescue medication use, fewer symptom days, and overall satisfaction with the program has been greater than 98%. So just exceedingly positive, great results there. The other thing is that in these underserved communities where vaccine hesitancy was at an all-time high back in mid to late 2020, when we entered into a conversation where we did what's called motivational interviewing and shared decision-making, over half of the people that we talked to got vaccinated on site. So what that tells me is that if you come to the table, build a trusted, mutually respectful conversation around what are your concerns, what is the information or misinformation you may have, and then share the facts that it you know, it builds trust and it changes people's perspective. And we saw that time and time and time again through this program. So that's why we're expanding the program and, and planning to go to 10 cities um, in 2022. And hopefully we'll have over a thousand patients in the coach program in this year. That's amazing. I think um, that, you know, um, just, you know, I'm, I'm, as an allergy parent, I'm part of a lot of different parent groups that, you know, Facebook and off of Facebook that, you know, kind of pool their, their knowledge together um, to try and, you know, navigate the allergy world. And it was such an interesting thing leading up to, you know, as the COVID vaccine was being developed and then available, um, it, 
the, the chatter, the, the back and forth of trying to figure out for my allergy son, is this something that, you know, we can safely take, you know, anytime we put something new in our body, it's always kind of ma making sure the product is safely, um, you know, made for his allergens and stuff like that. But, you know, really having the, the network, having a community around you that's like, yep, we called, here's their response. All of that is such a blessing um, when it comes to the allergies and the asthma and all of that sort of stuff to know that, you know, there's groups out there around you that are helping, you know, to get those answers for you so that you know it's safe to, to be able to, to take the vaccine. Well, thank you, Molly. I really appreciate that. And I'm glad that, you know, you found it to be a good supportive um, community because that's what it's really all about. Uh, you know, and, and there was, again, so much confusion out there around anaphylaxis to the vaccine and, um, you know, the risk of severe allergic reaction to the vaccine. And, and look, the media sort of picks up on these little, you know, one-offs or sound bites and makes it sound like everyone's at risk. And that's certainly not the case. So a lot of the work that we have done is just setting the record straight, um, helping people to understand that, you know, if you have an egg allergy, the vaccine is safe, there is no egg product. Um, yeah. If you have reacted to other vaccines in the past, what was the specific ingredient? Because it was the propylene glycol that is the, the one thing in the COVID vaccines that, um, you know, again, people could react to, but it's very, very rare. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, again, I think that there was just so many opportunities within the community to correct that misinformation and to rebuild trust because uh, as we all know, I mean, there are definitely systemic inequities and injustices that are at play for poor socioeconomic communities. And so we have always been dedicated to that at Allergy and Asthma Network, but the pandemic shined the spotlight on that and allowed us to step in even more in force than we ever have before. Absolutely. So over, you know, when we started the pandemic, obviously no one had any good information, I don't feel like, and we've learned a lot over the past couple of years. And going forward, I guess, could you share some advice on maybe how to keep a steady head? And, you know, we, we, I, I feel at least we went from, you know, major panic, shut everything down. We kind of moved forward through 2020. Uh, I think we got a little bit lax the summer of, of 2021, and then we got into the winter yeah. and, uh, you know, the new variant. And Omicron came along. O Omicron. And it broke us all up again. <laughs> exactly. And then all of a sudden yeah. there's another freak out. And then, you know, yeah. now as we go into spring outside yeah. of flu season and, and, you know, sick season um, and with other world events, maybe grabbing some of the headlines, you know, how do we, how should we kind of approach the next year or two? Yeah. Well, you know what, Brady, I love the, I love this question because I think it, what you just articulated is the way that most of us have felt over the last two years. It's been such a wild roller coaster ride. And there's been many times in my own journey and in the journey of the families that we support where I'm like, stop the ride, mister. I want off. <laughs> um, but the, here's the thing. Um, I think that 
we have to be our own best health advocate. No one's going to do that for you, right? We can't trust that necessarily to the government. We can't trust that to the media. We absolutely uh, can't fully trust that even to our own individual doctor. No one's going to care about your personal health like you. So re realizing that you're going to have to protect yourself, you're going to have to make some decisions about managing your own chronic diseases um, or conditions in a proactive way. Um, I think we're moving from this pandemic state to what's called an endemic state. And, and that means it's sort of like the flu. Every year we'll have to decide, do I wanna be vaccinated or do I wanna roll the dice and take my chances? Um, you know, I think that our government and our both our federal and state and local governments uh, will have to come to a more endemic approach to how we, um, you know, mandate vaccination, mask wearing, social distancing. Look, here's what we know. We saw record lows of hospitalizations due to asthma and COPD during the pandemic. Some of that was just because of good infection control measures. So we can all do better at that every day. Washing our hands, keeping our distance, you know, staying home when we don't feel well or when someone in our family doesn't feel well. Um, not, you know, the American way, push through, even when you're sick, go to work. That's not a good idea. And I think that we all have sort of had that wake up call over the last two years, uh, but it's time to strike the right balance to become your own best health advocate and to truly strike the right balance of those measures versus the freedom of living our lives. Question for you, and maybe it might be a, a fairly controversial question, but you know, because of the record like low in, you know, asthma, COP, you know, hospitalizations. Yes. Do you think going forward that they're going to say, you know, it worked well wearing a mask, social distancing, you know, that sort of thing during that flu season that do you think that like um, pulmonologists and like some of the what might encourage patients that have, you know, high risk asthma, COPD to potentially continue to wear masks like during the flu season going forward? Yeah, you know, Molly, I think that's a great question. And I do think that's going to happen. I think people, human behavior has been changed forever because this went on for so long, because we're talking about two years. Um, and so people that I know that live with severe asthma or those that live with COPD or compromised immune systems, they are more accepting and more willing of social distancing, of wearing masks. They've seen the positive impact of that in their own life. And so I do think that we're gonna uh, find more people doing that, especially during high infection rates and periods. The other question I kind of have, and, and I thought your answer to how we kind of need to handle going forward and being your own health advocate, um, we've heard that from, I think, a lot of people that we've had on the show. It's, you kind of have to uh, educate yourself to a certain extent and so on that piece of education, and you guys have clearly done such a good job of, of having those materials, what have you found are the best resources to kind of help you make those decisions about your, your own health care? 
Well, so we love the shared decision-making model and shared decision-making is, is really something that um, isn't always a, a readily accepted concept because that is where you basically are saying, I am driving my healthcare bus, right? So I'm the one who is in charge of my healthcare, my general you know, practitioner, my family practice doc, my pediatrician, they, they're partners on the bus but they're not the ones that are responsible for driving the bus. Um, it also is where I have unbiased, evidence-based treatment options, and I'm able to sort of weigh those options. What are the pros and cons, the risk and benefits of treating or not treating, of treating with one option versus another option? Um, you know, Molly was sharing earlier about her son uh, or her child with peanut allergy, and you know, peanut allergy patients and parents finally have options. Up until the last few years, the only option really was to avoid. It was avoid or experience anaphylaxis. Now there are FDA approved options and non-FDA approved options for managing peanut allergy. And so there's also things in the pipeline and in development. So how do we enter into those shared decision-making conversations using validated decision aids to do that and really to empower patients to feel like they're more on a more level playing field. We also do a lot of work of taking uh, guidelines and evidence-based like peer-reviewed literature and breaking it down into patient-friendly language and also translating it into native languages. Because if Spanish is my first language, I'm not gonna get something that's, full, that's written in English fully. And so, you know, again, having the ability to tailor and adapt these evidence-based approaches and messages, but to the audience needs, that's what we really focus on at Allergy and Asthma Network. Well, I mean, just to piggyback off of what you said, I mean, we having food allergies, we work really close with our, with our allergist and, um, you know, we've had, my son has multiple food allergies and we, you know, as soon as there's been a, a FDA approved peanut, um, treatment, we were, you know, biting at the bit to talk to the, the allergist about it. And, you know, he, he really went through it with us and, you know, it, we came to the decision that at that moment, at this moment in time, it's not right for our son just because of yeah. multiple food allergies that he has. But, um, you know, it was a joint decision where, you know, he helped us, um, you know, really kind of weigh the pros and cons of doing just peanut um, or potentially waiting and seeing, you know, within the next few years, hopefully something, you know, a little bit more advanced will come along that can tackle all of them. Yeah. You know, my, I appreciate that because he, the food allergy parent community can be pretty aggressive at times. Right. And everybody can tell you like, well, this is right for me. This is right for you. Well, as a food allergy parent myself, I have a daughter who um, has tree nut allergies. We also came to a point of evaluating different treatment options, both FDA approved and non-approved um, and, and decided not to pursue it as well. And yep. that was right for us because yep. our risk tolerance level, because of our, um, you know, just sort of way that we managed because of the uh, anxiety level, the psychosocial aspects, um, the commitment and the inconvenience of the treatment regimen, all yep. those things played into our personal decision to not pursue treatment. 
And so I think that we have to be respectful that what is the right decision for Tanya may not be the right decision for Molly and vice yeah. versa. Yeah. And that, you know, how do we come to that place of saying, I, I respect that you made an informed decision for you and your family, yeah. period. Yeah. Um, so, and that's our aim. It's just that we provide the education, provide the information, and then put the ball in the court of each individual patient and or caregiver to really come to that, that decision that they're comfortable with. Now, does the, the asthma and allergy network, do you guys do any um, sort of more like psychological stuff? Just because there's so much anxiety that comes both with the asthma and the allergy. Um, do you guys provide any, you know, not counseling? So we do, but we have, we have licensed clinical social workers and mental health professionals that have completed a 12 module course on food allergy and asthma specifically. And we've got those uh, individuals available on a telehealth network so they can see you um, whether you are, you know, no matter where you are across the country. And so um, we just launched that program last year. It has continuing education credits associated with it for those mental health providers. And um, again, it, you know, this is, it's, it's a different disease when you're talking about life-threatening allergies because Oftentimes, you're not only dealing with the child and their age-appropriate understanding and anxiety and concern three times, at least three times a day, they're eating, right? Mm -hmm. And so that is the thing here. But then in food allergy, you're also oftentimes dealing with the parents. And even the parents may not be on the same page. And certainly, extended family often isn't on the same page. So navigating all of that can be really tricky. And that's why we invested in this program and develop a program with experts um, to train other licensed mental health professionals. No, I mean, I think that's just so important just because it it, it kind of goes hand in hand. I mean, you can't expect these younger kids and even the older kids and the adults to, you know, like here, you know, you can't eat anything that contains your allergen, but like here, go, you know, go out, do whatever you need to do. Don't think about it. Don't worry about it when, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's always kind of, you know, under the surface that, you know, it you is. Yeah. yeah and, you know, I mean, for us, I will have to say it's, it's all about age appropriateness because um, I felt like helicopter mom, you know, mama bear on steroids when Carson was little. Um, and, and honestly, as she got into elementary school, we weighed the decision of a nut-free table and all of that sort of stuff. And and could she spend the night at friends and could she eat out and all of those things, yeah. right? Carson is now 17. And next year she finishes high school and heads off to college. I just hope and pray that I have done the job age appropriately. And we've got lots of support for this to release that control or influence or mm-hmm. helicopter mom, mama bear spirit to her being empowered to do it on her own, to speak up for herself, to avoid high-risk situations, um, but to still live her life. Because Carson never leads with, I have a food allergy. She is a sister, daughter, tennis player, vice president of her class, you know, all of these other things. And oh yeah, by the way, I also don't eat nuts, right? So um, I think that, 
that's what we have to help our kids to come to that place. And, yeah. and again, as moms and, and dads and, and loved ones release our own anxiety and fear. Yep. No, I mean, I think, you know, with my son, it's, it's teaching him how to be in some ways independent, you know, that, yeah. that he can feel comfortable being at school or being at a friend's house and self-empowered to say, whoa, yes, wait yeah. a second, you know, was this made, you know, what brand is this? Or can I check the label or, you know, all those things. And I feel like, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, the, the kids that suffer from food allergies and asthma and all of that kind of become their own self-advocate, which I think is a fabulous thing, you know, to be able to do. Um, and I know that they're, they're taken care of, you know, and that. Yeah. You know, and we actually have data that shows that, right. Mm-hmm. That those kids tend to be more mature. They tend to be um, more responsible. They definitely tend to be more empowered when it comes to their health care. So there's a silver lining in having um, life-threatening allergies in, in the way that it develops your child, you know, uh, and young adult more holistically. So uh, I, I have that conversation often with Carson. While it's hard at times and uncomfortable, um, it, it also has some some silver lining to You'll have to let me know how that that transition away from home is going to go because I'm not sure. I have a ten year old, so I'm a, a little bit behind you. But that the thought of it at this point is just <laughs> yes. work up onto it. It. Is, it is a little hard, and you know, you're you're just at the brink of that time where they start to really spend more time out of your home than in your home. Yes, and and that is such a critical time to really again try to begin to release some of that absolutely, um, and, and empower them more. So uh, good luck. We'll definitely stay in touch and, and want to hear more about your journey. Fabulous. All right. Um, well, if we didn't hit on anything, Tanya, can you kind of let me know, um, is there any other information that you would like um, our audience to know about? Yeah, Brady. Well, I would just say that, um, I mean, we have such a wealth of resources, free information, free downloads, um, free help for getting your medication. So visit allergyasthmanetwork.org. I think the website is so beautifully done. I can't take credit for that. The team is amazing. And it's really easy to navigate. You can get the answers to your questions. But if you can't get them there at allergyasthmanetwork.org, you can always call our helpline. We've got a toll-free helpline at one 800 878-4403 and someone is there to answer your questions or help you get um, the support that you need. Is there anywhere uh, anybody can follow you on social media or anything like that? Is that a a big tool for you guys to use as well? It is. So uh, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, um, and TikTok. We just started doing some work on TikTok. So uh, definitely YouTube, a lot of videos there. You can go to at Allergy Asthma HQ for headquarters. So at Allergy HQ, Allergy Asthma HQ. Um, and again, at allergyasthmanetwork.org, there's the links to all of those social channels. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on and educating us about uh, allergy and asthma. And uh, we look forward to see. Uh, the great work that you guys continue to do. Um, And thanks again for your time. Uh, And Molly, thanks. Thank you as well for kind of helping me uh, ask the right questions and give some insight from your end as well. Um, So if there's not anything else, uh, I hope both of you have a wonderful day and a great weekend. Thank you.
This podcast is brought to you by Freedom Physical Therapy Services, providing exceptional one-to-one hands-on care to the greater Milwaukee area for over 25 years. Our physical and occupational therapists prepare custom plans for your condition to relieve pain and improve performance. Allow us to help you enjoy more freedom at freedompt.com.